This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about the fascinating world of lichens with one of the few lichenologists in the West, Steve Levitt. I have been exploring Utah's deserts for as long as I can remember. And I got interested in lichens and I ended up taking a lichenology class as an undergraduate student that I just loved. So I ended up going to grad school, getting a PhD. And then I was hired here at BYU after spending some time at the University of Chicago and the Field Museum in the Midwest. And then I was happy to come back here to to the West to where it feels like I have some roots. And now I'm an associate professor of biology and the curator of our lichen collection. Thank you for that. Except for noting how some pretty cool patterns that lichen make on rocks. I don't know much about them, but from what I understand, it's actually two organisms that are functioning as a single organism. So why? Why do they need two organisms to to function? Yeah, I love that question, right? So, So I think the question of why is fundamentally much more interesting. It's that idea where you have two things coming together and, and one of the partners, if you'd call them partners, evolutionarily is always trying to take advantage, get the upper hand. From my perspective in the natural world, there's no such thing as like this peace, love and harmony idea. And when you think about things like symbioses, that may be the iconic image that comes to mind is that they're getting together and helping each other out. But in reality, it's way more complex than that. And the question of like, how would this actually happen becomes pretty weird and and actually really challenging to answer. When I first started studying lichens, I would say they would do this, you know, and I'd give this this kind of textbook answer that the fungus is there creating a structure where the algae can survive and that the fungus is screening um, UV radiation, just creating a beautiful little like growth chamber for the algae. And that algae can grow and in return, it's returning sugars to the fungus. So kind of like a fungus that's, that's discovered farming or something. And the question then is, why does it happen? Well, there's something evolutionarily advantageous that's coming from this specific type of exchange of goods, whether it's carbohydrates from the, the algae or whatever's photosynthesizing, some structural uh, support or protection from herbivores from the fungus. There's something happening in this exchange of goods and services that is really good evolutionarily. And in fact, this idea of like lichens has evolved multiple times independently. I know that's a gross answer, (laughs) but, but, but that's kind of it. It's just this exchange of stuff and there's something evolutionarily advantageous and so advantageous that it's happened multiple times. Right. It's interesting. And so is that something in the fact that these two organisms are relying on each other? Is that what separates a lichen from, say, a more generic fungus? Yeah, and I think to, to, to some degree that would, that would be a good way of thinking about it is that there may be more intimate or, or obligate reliance on those symbiotic interactions or more reliance on those specific exchanges of goods and services. Okay. Um, fungi can do their own thing in different ways. These lichens have to exchange these things in, in really specific ways. 
I mean, is there any difference between, I mean, the lichens that form, say, on a tree bark, you think, okay, it's forming on this living organism. It kind of makes sense. But when you, when you start seeing lichen on just a rock face, why does it get there in the first place? Why is it drawn to that rock, rock face? Yeah, it, it, it may be the, the beauty of a rock face, especially something that's exposed and hot, is you have no competition. So somehow you can figure out a way to survive on that. You're not dealing with, with a shaded canopy from woody trees or shrubs. You have the real estate all to yourself. And in fact, this may be one of the reasons why lichens evolved is that those, those sugars or the polysaccharides from the, the algae, those can actually be used to help protect um, the organism from desiccation. So if this fungus could figure out a way to not use those polysaccharides for energy, rather save them for, for protection from desiccation, now it's able to colonize these, these novel and unique habitats. And some recent work done um, from Toby Sperbilla in Canada has you know, brought to light this idea again, like these carbohydrates from the algae aren't only food for the fungus, but also protection from drying out. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, like, so I, I know up in, uh, I mean, the Canadian Rockies, like the floors of those forests were just covered in everywhere. It's not just like beautiful mushrooms, but just lichen, it's just like growing on everything. The whole floor was alive with this whole ecosystem. Are those any different than something that's out in the middle of the desert on a rock? Well, it, it sure feels like it, doesn't it? <laughs> Walking across the sandstone and you th see these little gray and brown and dark patches on the sandstone, it feels fundamentally different from those, those beautiful macro lichens um, in other places. Yeah. Um, and they are. I mean, they're, they're the symbiosis and they're surviving in a different niche, a different habitat. They're different players. But what they have in common is that it's this reliance on, on a fungus, an alga, and then a whole bunch of other microbes to survive. Yeah. And many of them do share common evolutionary origins. Right. And not all lichens have evolved multiple times, but you can have big three-dimensional macro lichens that have the same common ancestor as some weird teeny tiny crusts, crustose lichens that you never see. So yeah, they're, they're, they're all lichens, but doing it in different ways. Yeah. And when you say lichens have evolved several times, what, what do you mean by that? You have fungi doing a whole bunch of things from parasites to um, saproids to fungi just occurring inside of plants. So these fungi have different nutritional strategies, ways of getting their nutrition through decomposition, parasitism, whatever. And lichens or this idea of being lichenized, it's just one of the nutritional strategies um, that fungi use. So, so that's one way of thinking about it. You can take a more deep or philosophical perspective and think a lichen is not a fungus. A lichen is not an alga. Uh -huh. A lichen is this chimeric combination, this whole process. So what does it mean to be like an individual or share an evolutionary origin? Maybe the fungi share an evolutionary origin, but in many cases you have to have all of these players come together again and again and again to form that same, what we'd call the same species of a lichen. But what it is, it's just the result of this process of interacting microbes. Right. Um, okay. Kind of weird. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, why study them? What 
what function do they serve or what, what can we learn from them? I was telling my class, we were, at a, we were out doing some field work, looking at a specific site at the lichens there. And I said, if all of these lichens disappeared tomorrow, you would probably never notice any change in this ecosystem, at least on relatively short timeframes, years to decades. It probably wouldn't make a huge difference. But, but one of the reasons to study them is simply that idea that they're weird, they're interesting, they're part of this incredible array of diversity on Earth, and we have very little idea of what's actually going on and how that diversity came to be. For me, it's simply that idea that there are questions, and let's figure out ways to try to answer those. And it helps us you know, become more grounded in, in, in the beauty of, of life on Earth. But we can step back probably across deeper geologic time and, and recognize that these lichens are fundamentally important for soil formation. You know, they, they slowly weather or, or, or degrade rocks and we end up with um, some productive soils. In other cases, they actually stabilize soil through these biological soil crusts, or they can help other vascular plants to germinate or to facilitate more effective water infiltration and retain better moisture in soils. So they actually do have some important ecological roles, but in many cases, if they were gone, we wouldn't notice any difference, at least at a relatively short time frame. At BYU, you have your own lab, the Leave It Lichenology Lab. Yeah. I mean, what are some of the things you're currently studying there? Yeah, awesome. We are into a bit of everything that's, that's lichens or even potentially lichen related. So one of the things that we're working on, we have some projects going on in the LaSalle Mountains outside of Moab. And, and there are some really interesting lichen communities where we have big three-dimensional lichens that are just dripping off the conifers huh. up in the subalpine forests. And it looks like something you would see in Alaska or British Columbia. And there's nowhere else in the state where those occur. So we're interested in what are those processes that facilitated the formation of these really cool macro-lichen communities. Um, and we know of two of them. One of them is, is near Geyser Pass, and it was partially damaged um, in the Pack Creek fire. And then the other site is, is further south. So one of the questions is, how do we end up with these weird lichen communities in the Sky Island in the middle of the desert? Yeah. We're interested in that. We're interested in using lichens as biomonitors so we can go out and collect a lichen that's been sitting on a rock for the past, you know, five or six or 10 decades, grind it up. We can analyze the concentrations for a whole bunch of different potential pollutants, things like lead or iron or titanium. And then we can use these as proxies to look at air quality. It turns out that some of the more interesting stories that, that these can tell us are things like dust deposition. Um, and that actually has some pretty substantial impacts on human health. And some current work that we're looking at right now is, is trying to, to better understand how we can look at dust deposition using lichens. And as things dry out, um, especially in the Great Basin, we have the movement of these ancient playas, um, and we're getting more dust distributed in different ways. And that can have some really significant impacts on human health. If you're taking a lichen and you actually grind it up, so there's not, you're not looking at any like process through time, like how it's grown, you grind it up. So everything's in there. I mean, what do you see that, that says there's been some, some dust 
events in that lichen's life. Yeah, and what we're looking at when we grind it up is we're looking at the profile of the concentrations of different elements. Okay. And different dust sources or even different pollutant sources have different signatures, meaning different um, relative abundances of these potential pollutant sources. So we can go through and we look at these, these chemical profiles within this ground up lichen, and then we try to match up those profiles to known profiles of, or dust from a specific region. Increasing fire frequency with increasing recreational traffic or resource extraction traffic, dust is just being moved around likely more frequently than it has in the past and in new ways. Interesting. And I mean, do you have some sort of library or some kind of resource of known profiles of lichen in British Columbia versus known profiles of lichen in Utah? So or that's, is that something you work, you're working on? Or? That's the tricky part. So that's, that's yeah. what we work on is, is our inferences are only as good as the available data. Right. Um, and that available data is pretty limited. It's even more complicated because atmospheric wind patterns are so variable, um, both temporally and spatially. So it may be deposited at a certain site, typically in the month of May. If you go back and look at that, that signature in, in November, the air is coming from a different region. So we have these shifts in atmospheric deposition throughout the year. But those lichens, I mean, they're just taking in whatever's coming throughout the entire year. So there's a lot of statistical tests that we have to use to try to tease apart the most prevalent deposition pattern. It's statistically challenging. It's challenging in terms of data availability, matching up profiles. But that's one of the beauties of it is thinking, man, this is a hard question. Do we have ways to come up with with interesting, meaningful solutions? And in some cases, that's like, the beauty of it all is thinking, this is hard, and I think we found a solution to come up with a decent approximation. And that's really fun as a scientist. Yeah, it is. And so, I mean, besides your lab, are there other lichenology labs in the West? Yeah, I love this. Good question. <laughs> right. So I, I joke with people and I say, I'm one of the best lichenologists in the West or one of the worst. It depends <laughs> on the day. And there's only two of us, so it just depends on kind of how we're flip-flopping back and forth. Excellent, yeah. Um, so there's, there's, there aren't a lot of labs, but here in the state of Utah, at Weber State, we actually have, we, speaking collectively of a, as a state, um, Heather Root, she is a lichenologist and an ecologist, and she is a phenomenal scientist. So there are two professional lichenologists um, that I, I know of here in the state of Utah. As you move out, we have a few smaller labs here and there. Oregon State University, the Bruce McCune Lab, they do some really phenomenal ecological and and, and biodiversity research. If you head head south to Arizona State University, um, there's a gentleman named Frank Bungharts, and he does really great stuff. In the West, there's not a lot of institutions that are dedicating resources to supporting lichenological research. Yeah. That's very good. You're, you're, uh, you're on the cutting edge there. Yeah, that is the nice thing, right? So another beautiful thing about being a part of a discipline like lichenology or any discipline that, that tends to be underrepresented 
it's a wide playing field as a community. Like we're not stepping on each other's toes. We're really collegial. We get along because anytime somebody's interested in these things, it's exciting to see progress no matter where it comes from. You look at all these amazing, colorful, different shapes, got just infinite numbers of intricate patterns. Can you tell anything from the visual aspect of a lichen? its overall health or anything about it or what its host is? I mean, why all these different variations? This, this is, I think, really a fascinating aspect too, right? So a lot of times those colors that we see, those lichens are producing those colors maybe for like a sunscreen, right? So if you go out and you see a bunch of orange lichens growing on exposed sandstone, it's more likely than not that those compounds are produced by the fungus as a sunscreen to protect the algae. In other cases, you may see a beautiful green lichen growing on a rock and you think, oh, it's the algae that's making it green. No, it's actually um, usnic acid, another, another secondary metabolite that the fungus is producing, maybe for anti-herbivory to keep snails from munching on it, oh. or to keep whatever critter might be interested to keep them from eating that. And in fact, you know, if we think about the LaSalle's and the recent introduction of, of mountain goats, one of the concerns is that these mountain goats will target and start eating um, some of these specific lichens that are palatable and will have the decimation of, of some pretty unique lichen communities in that limited alpine habitat in the LaSalle's. Hmm. And to date, we don't have any evidence, direct evidence of mountain goats eating lichens in the LaSalle's. But in other places in the Northwest, it's well-documented that, that they will eat lichens frequently. Hmm. Um, yeah. So all the colors, all the, the shapes, the colors are for anti-herbivory or sunscreens. The shapes are for ways of dealing with water or heat. What we're seeing is the interaction or the process of interaction of multiple organisms, but they have evolutionary um, adaptations that allow them to have preferential success and survive and reproduce. Yeah. So it's this cool thing where we have adaptations, not at the level of, of an organism, but adaptations at the level of interacting organisms. Huh. Well, Steve, I really appreciate you talking with Science Moab. It's opened my eyes to the whole world of lichen. Well, my, my pleasure. It was nice talking with you, Peggy. And um, this is fun. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Newsletter by Luke Williams. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.